From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Because every time you prescribe an opioid, you might as well be giving somebody a loaded handgun. That is something that can not only kill them, but it can kill somebody else. That's John Bowman talking about the opioid crisis. We'll hear more from John later in the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. The number of complex regulations impacting healthcare practices is staggering, including everything from proper waste management and drug disposal to preserving patient privacy and data security. With over 30 years of expertise in compliance services and solutions, Stericycle is ready to help healthcare practices make compliance simple so you can focus on what matters, your patients. From reliable waste management services to 24-7 online compliance training and resources, our experts have you covered. To see how Stericycle can ensure your practice remains safe, secure, and compliant, visit Stericycle.com reliability. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse in the United States is $78.5 billion a year. That includes the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. Opioids kill over 130 people a day, or more than 47,000 people a year. In all, roughly 25% of patients prescribed opioids will misuse them. On the other side of the opioid crisis, people often forget that doctors are also at risk. They face a number of burdens every day. Some are complex, some are simple. For example, a study published just last week found physicians are 33% more likely to prescribe opioids later in the day and when appointments are running behind schedule. Knowing protocols can improve patient safety and reduce prescriber liability from the over or misprescribing of opioids and other controlled substances. Our guest today is John Bowman. John is the CEO of SureMed Compliance. If you're a keen listener of the show, you might remember John from our August 7th episode. Due to time constraints, we only ran a small portion of his interview for that show, but we felt that the whole interview was worth hearing. And now, our conversation with John Bowman. Now, if you can, just share with our audience a little bit about your career in healthcare and what eventually led you to your work that you do at SureMed Compliance. Sure. Well, for about uh, about 10 years, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, um, held numerous jobs in that industry, worked in marketing a little bit, uh, worked in sales, uh, worked in sales management. Um, but one of the things that kind of stuck out to me uh, from my pharma experience is that if you could get in front of a physician a, a some, certain number of times that you could you could change behavior. And that's key because where we were, where I was living previously before living here in Alabama is in Manatee County, Florida. And in Manatee County, Florida, we were at one point number one in the nation for heroin overdoses per capita. Uh, we were seeing about nine deaths a day at one point in a county of you know, probably around 150,000 people. So you can imagine um, the surprise and thinking, why Manatee County? And that was the question that a lot of the politicians were asking. That's the the question that a lot of the detectives and the and the sheriff's deputies that were arriving on scene during these overdoses were asking: is why is it 
that so many people were were dying of a heroin overdose. And you would think about, you know, as far as size is concerned, you'd think about Dade County, you'd think about Broward, some of the larger counties. But it was happening right here in our home in our home county, Manatee County. And what we started to see is that there was a causal relationship, pardon me, not a causal, but a, a correlation between uh, opioid prescriptions and heroin. And um, a good, very, very close friend of mine, uh, who is a, a deputy, um, sheriff's deputy down in Manatee County, was, was sometimes issuing naloxone two and three times a day to people. And it was breaking his heart, it was breaking my heart. We were, we were running into people that we hadn't gone to high school with and that we knew for many years overdosing. And we said, we've gotta figure out what's going on. And we kind of put our heads together and started to look into it. And I can tell you, once we opened that wormhole, um, it was it, once we went down that it was very hard to to kind of do anything else and look back and and so we we realized that opioids that about you know we, we obviously this was prior to that New England Journal of Medicine article being published uh, that that showed a correlation between opioid prescribing and uh, and heroin but we knew that it certainly existed we could tell also it didn't help that the number one prescriber of oxycodone and hydrocodone was right in Manatee County and so we thought with my experience in pharma and what I had done in the past, is there any way that we can figure out how to re-educate physicians? And that's truly how SureMed Compliance was founded, was on how can we re-educate physicians um, on proper opioid prescribing. And so we, we went and we, we spent quite a, bit of re- did a, quite a bit of research. We worked with a lot of the different physicians in Bradenton and, and Sarasota counties, and we started to try and figure out what is it that physicians need to do in order to safely initiate and continue opioid therapy. And, uh, and the company was founded, and we began uh, actually going in and educating physicians, those that would allow us to do that. Um, and we soon began to find that physicians just didn't have the time to do all of the things that we were asking them to do. We'd go in and say, hey, here's all these different things that have to be looked at and have to be assessed, and you should document this in your chart. And, and they would look at us, and they would say, There's, you know, I spend five to ten minutes with my patients. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. And so... Um, that's when we decided we really had to get involved and we had to come up with a solution for physicians. Mm-hmm. What time frame are you talking about? When did you first come, with, come up with this idea and then, and then launch the company? Sure, it was right around um, 2015 is when we started to really put the research into it and started to talk to physicians. Um, and I believe uh, J- uh, January of 2016 is when that article was published by the New England Journal of Medicine, which really helped us to to kind of focus and say there's definitely something here and that if we can change prescribing habits, we can certainly help with this overdose epidemic. Mm-hmm. Now, you've made the opioid epidemic a, a primary focus of yours. Let's take a big picture view then. Where is the medical community failing in this battle? I mean, you talked about educating physicians. Um, are you finding that they weren't trained properly? Were they getting misleading information about the opioids? I mean, what was going on there? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different factors that played into why we are where we are right now. And I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, the medical community plays a large role, obviously, in the failings that have happened. I mean, all across the board, there's blame to be given. I mean, we can look at specifically at the FDA and and we can look at messaging that was allowed to take place by some of the pharma companies in the 90s that um, was inaccurate. I mean, based on, you know, very, very little information in acute settings. I mean, I think 
Um, if you if you if you're not familiar with the book Dreamland, anybody who's listening to this, I I highly encourage you, uh, shamelessly encourage you to read the book Dreamland by Sam Kenyon's, because it's a very um, good uh, description of why we are why we're here or why why we are where we're at right now. But you did have you had misinformation in the 90s. You had pharma companies telling physicians that opioids were not addictive, um, that there was no ceiling to how much you could prescribe. You had you know, um, physicians that were being raided by their patients on how well they controlled pain. And those physicians could lose privileges at hospitals. They were kicked out of group settings sometimes um, because they didn't manage pain enough. So the pendulum was kind of all the way over on one side where physicians were being told treat pain as the fifth vital sign and you need to make sure that you're prescribing enough opioids to patients that need it. And then all of a sudden we, we start to realize that maybe some of the information that we had wasn't right. and. Uh, there was a very, very abrupt and quick and, and, and aggressive change to uh, the, the, the guidelines and how physicians were supposed to prescribe. And so one of the failings really is, is that, you know, you have to imagine if you're a doctor and you've spent the last 15 years prescribing opioids a certain way, you've built your practice that way. The workflow of the practice, and this is kind of where I think some of the, these are some of the unspoken things that, that people know is real, but it, for some reason or another, it typically doesn't come up in conversation when we talk about solving the opioid epidemic. Time is the biggest enemy of the well-meaning physician. Now, certainly there's doctors out there that are prescribing and doing it the wrong way intentionally. And, and most of those, I can tell you, the DEA and the state boards have done a really good job at figuring out where those doctors are, and, and many of them have been removed. But we're not, the, 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 we're not in the same place we were four, five, six years ago where you had liberal prescribing to opioid-naive patients. We're at a completely different place now. We've got a whole population of patients that have been depend that are dependent on these opioids, biologically dependent, and can't stop even if they wanted to. And we've got physicians that are terrified to to do to manage those patients. And so, you know, you, you see this inverse relationship between opioid prescriptions starting in about 2012, and an increase in um, in, in in overdoses. So you've got prescriptions going down, overdoses rapidly rising. Well, you, you know, intuitively, you would think that doesn't make sense. But what's happening is you have all of these patients that were started on opioids that became chemically, de you know, physically dependent on them. And once they're stopped because of the regulatory scrutiny that's occurring and, and physicians are being afraid to manage these patients, they go and they find uh, illegal fentanyl and, 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 and analogs like that on the street. Uh, they take whatever they can get their hands on. You know, we know addiction is a disease of the brain, and that means that while somebody with the disease of addiction may prefer one drug to another if they if they can get their hands on anything they'll usually take it to try and help with side effects and uh, and try and also help with the way that they feel make them feel better so um, I think there's a, a lot of failings I think it's there's a lot of blame to be to be put on, on what was allowed to be uh, disseminated in the 90s but if we look at where we're at now and and how we move forward you know doctors still have the same amount of time in the office as they always had. There's only so many hours in the day. And yet all these physicians have built these practices, like I said, seeing a certain amount of patients every day. And with declining reimbursement and physicians scrambling as hard as they can to try and find um, alternate uh, revenue streams and things like that, you know, it's, it's hard to tell a doctor, hey, you've been spending five to 10 minutes with these patients, but really tr if you're gonna actively verify each patient's suitability, you need to spend, you know, 30 minutes, an hour with these patients. Mm -hmm. Well, you can say that to a physician and they say, there's just no way we could do that. And so uh, I think one of the failings is, you know, there needs to be, you know, we look at individualized care and, and there's this big push recently to try and let's look at the patient holistically and, and individually. Well, that takes time. 
and time is money to the physician. So as long as they don't have the time in the office to spend and do that with the patient, patients are still going to fall through the cracks. And I can tell you that, you know, what, what physicians used to say is, oh, I know my patient population. I've been with them for 10 years. I know who's at risk and who's not. And then all of a sudden, we started to do urine drug testing in offices. And wow, wasn't that a wake-up call for a lot of physicians? They were thinking that this, this woman that they'd been treating or this man they'd been treating for years that was low risk is actually high risk. And then we started to look at the PDMP data, and we started to see that patients were doctor shopping. And even the ones that were, were the least likely in our minds to be the ones that were misusing these substances are the ones that are doing it. So, mm-hmm. um, so let me... You know, and then the other thing is yeah. that... Oh, good. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to ask you, so... Based on what you're saying, then, if even if the a physician is educated, is up to speed on what they need to know as far as a treatment program, but it's not what, unfortunately, not what someone who's addicted wants to hear, do they just go to the next physician? Or, as you were saying, they go to the street and get the drugs there as well? Well, yes. I mean, they certainly will do that if they're not treated appropriately. appropriately. And then remember, addiction is a disease of the brain, and mm-hmm. so the mental, it's, a, it's a mental illness, and we need to treat it that way. And, and the kind of the, the analogy I like to give is, um, you know, you've got – imagine that you, your physician was prescribing you a, a box of Twinkies, you know, daily. And, you know, five years later, you show up and your A1C is high, and you, you, maybe you're pre-diabetic or you've developed diabetes. And that doctor now all of a sudden says, hey, I can't treat you because you have diabetes and I don't treat diabetes. Well, it was the mechanism of what the physician was prescribing for so many years, and now you, you have dependence. I mean, we, we know that dependence can start as early as five days. Physical dependence, can, can, can the onset of that can be as early as five days. We know that most patients who have stayed on opioids longer than 90 days are, are physically, biologically dependent on that molecule, which means... Uh, you've got all these activated receptor sites. You've got an, an increase in noradrenaline. That means that you're going to feel really bad when you stop taking that medicine. And so even those without the disease of addiction um, but just have physical dependence, are, they're very, very unlikely that they're going to be able to get off that medicine if a doctor doesn't properly manage them off of it. But what's happening now is that physicians are afraid to manage those patients. Um, aberrant behavior happens in patients that are dependent. Aberrant behavior happens in patients that have the disease of addiction. And what doctors have been trained to do in the past or what they've thought they needed to do in the past because of the regulatory scrutiny is to simply dismiss patients when that happens. And we know when, if you just dismiss a patient from a practice or you give them a referral into a pain treatment clinic, say you're a primary care doctor, well, it can take time to get into those, those, those um, pain management physicians. And uh, if the patient isn't able to get their hands on the medication they need, even one day or two days without that medication can be very, very difficult and could send a patient into the ER. And so, um, so that's, that, again, that's one of the failings there, I think, is that we have, you know, I, I, rightfully so, we needed to regulate this, and rightfully so, we needed to remove some physicians. But the environment now that is caused because of that is causing physicians to not have the confidence in, in, in order to manage those patients. If we could just allow physicians to feel confident and say, hey, listen, we know there's a problem. We know that there's a lot of patients that are on high doses of opioids, some that are on benzodiazepine therapy. You don't have to just all of a sudden drop their doses to below, you know, wherever you feel like they need to be. And I know there's some, the CDC guidelines that, you know, that, that have set, that they've set, but physicians just feel a need to get some of those patients out of the office as fast as possible because they're a liability. And so um, there needs to be a more balanced approach. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the steps then that can be taken to get a better handle on the problem? And I'm talking about it 
strictly from the the clinical side, the provider side, what can they do better as far as managing it to, uh, if that means getting patients somehow weaned off of uh, these addictive drugs or uh, just manage them properly? What's, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I think the first thing that physicians, uh, and, a, and a lot of them are doing this, by the way, but I think the first thing is understanding who I have in my practice understanding which patients have the disease of addiction, which these patients have a higher propensity for it. And that means stratifying your patients into risk, knowing which ones are going to, that, that have a likelihood of having adverse uh, uh, events, which could be overdose, which could be a lot of other side effects and things that come with that. The other thing I think that's really important is for an understanding of dependence. And I know doctors know this very well. Unfortunately, I feel like, um, regulators, um, sort of have missed the boat on this. We, we see court cases, where a physician has had their license revoked for treating a, a physically dependent patient. And, and, and that's where you start getting into kind of the legal standards that they look at and how, they, how, they, um, you know, how they're defining some of these legal terms. Um, but we have, we have a whole population of people that have been on these medications for years. And that's from the, the liberal prescribing that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s. They're, they're in the patient population, there a lot of them uh, were started because of an acute injury, became dependent on the medication, and now it's just simply treating that acute injury. Part of me treating that dependence. A lot of patients were taking this for pain, and um, they started to co- they they had an issue or you know some kind of a a loss in the family or, or some kind of traumatic event that happened, and now they're simply coping, and so they're taking it for coping reasons. They're they're trying to treat emotional pain rather than physical, and so identifying who they are in the practice, and then coming up with a custom-tailored plan on how we can manage those patients. Most patients, by the way, that have the disease of addiction, or pardon me, actually just about all the patients we've encountered and that we know that have addiction, they don't want to be addicted to the medication. If you could go back and just go to that one time where you took that first pill, they'd say, I would never have taken it. But they're in the throes of it and they can't get out of it. And many patients that are dependent on the medication, if they just had uh, belief and faith in their physician that if they went to their doctor and said, hey, listen, I don't want to be on this medication anymore and I don't need it, or I don't need it at the dose that I'm taking it at, that the physician wasn't going to abruptly stop them, they would have those open conversations. And of course, like I said, with the limited time that the physician has in the office, which by the way is, is truly the, 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 the biggest enemy, the biggest enemy is the, is the element of time. If physicians had more time, they'd be able to uncover these things with patients. They'd be able to have these conversations. And they could tell patients, you know, we're going to put a plan together that tapers you slowly, that gets you off the medication or gets you to a lower dose, um, rather than what's happened, you know, recently is what we've seen is with, with the new guidelines, physicians have started to rapidly reduce um, patients' doses. And, and we know that that's when you start to see that aberrant behavior. That's when you start to see patients going out and getting other substances. Mm-hmm. What is the 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 outcome then if if a, a physician does get to that point where they just can't treat this patient anymore um, what's the natural progression what does the patient do do they go find other resources we, I know we've talked about that either on the street or are there other actual clinical resources that they will go to yeah there are actually and the government's done a pretty good job I think of, of funding a lot of that um, you know I think suboxone treatment is very successful if it's done right 
and I think there needs to be more access to Suboxone. Um, you know, we certainly believe uh, in a patient's right to for, for methadone if needed, especially for harm reduction purposes. Um, but when it comes to giving a patient quality of life back again and, and getting them back to work and, and back to being a member of society and a member of their families, you know, we think that there's probably better options than that out there. Um, you know, the natural progression looks like first stratifying your patients into what risk level they are and then monitoring those higher, you know, moderate to higher risk patients much more closely, being more vigilant in that care. And then if you do end up seeing some red flags or some aberrant behavior, making sure that you're sending those patients to get to behavior health specialists, trying to see if there's a substance use disorder diagnosis you can get. And once you do get that, it's, it would certainly be important to, uh, to either treat that patient for substance use disorder, again, with Suboxone or something like that, or uh, to give them, uh, to get them to somebody that can do that. And, and so I think where the gap is right now is in the diagnosis part of it, getting an actual diagnosis. We have, pe we have doctors that we do chart audits on, and they've got 30% of their patient population they've identified as high risk with plenty of aberrant behavior, inconsistent drug screens. We've got inconsistent PDMP reports. We've got um, behave, you know, witness behavior in the office that they've seen, that they've documented, um, and yet they still are managing those patients at the same dose, and there's no change to the treatment plan. And, and we say, well, that's somebody that most likely has substance use disorder or may have substance use disorder. They, we need to get them that diagnosis. We need to see if they truly have it. Um, and then we need to get them properly managed. And, and the tricky part of it really is, is that there are, pa there are patients that have legitimate pain and also have, a, have, the, have addiction issues. And so how do you treat the patient that you know has pain but also has addiction? So that's the tricky part. And that's something that I can tell you we are not experts on by any means, and we haven't been able to solve that. Right. Now, you are speaking on this topic at MGMA's annual conference. In researching your presentation, uh, I came across two uh, phrases that are often mentioned by law enforcement. The first one is, in the usual course of business. And the second one is, legitimate medical purpose. I wanted you to define these two phrases um, and tell us what providers need to know about them. Sure, that's a great question. Actually, that is, um, it's probably one of the most important questions is how a, a practice is defining that based on some of the case law that we've seen. And so, you know, the, the, they come from, so in the usual course of professional practice or in the usual course of business actually comes from the Controlled Substance Act. And it is generally accepted that in order for a physician to be found guilty of a prescription drug crime, they have to do three things. The first thing is they have to prescribe a controlled substance. Uh, two, they have to do it willfully and knowingly. And three, they have to do it outside the course of usual professional practice or business. If you dig into case law, what you'll find is oftentimes when that term in the course of usual professional practice uh, is, is mentioned, what they are mentioning is did a physician prescribe it while they were practicing medicine? Did they go through the step? Was, it, was this a patient that came in and received this opioid um, through, in the normal course of their business? And, and, and what it looks like, it's easier to kind of describe what it doesn't look like than what it does look like. What it, what it doesn't look like and what is outside the course of usual business typically means that a physician was actually selling uh, the, the medicine or trading it for favors or things like that. And you saw you see that quite a bit in uh, the cases of the, the most recent DEA cases against physicians. 
So in the, in the course of usual professional practice, uh, or outside the course of it, I should say, simply means most of the time, it means that they were, they were selling it a lot of times, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, legitimate medical purpose is something that is very, very tricky. And this is kind of, I would say, one of the reasons why I think SureMed compliance has been successful is because we've been able to dig into case law, take a look at the different data points that are, that are, that are cited in each of these different cases, and, and come up with our own medical legal definition for what that means. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to define, and there's a reason for that. It's, it's not allowed to be defined by the Department of Justice, and that was from a very a key court case that happened. Um, um, I want to say it was uh, Oregon versus Gonzalez, I believe, is the court case that was, it was a Death with Dignity Act that came out of that, and it was a physician that was doing physician-assisted suicide, and what, what was ruled in that case is that the, the DEA or the DOJ has no right to tell uh, a physician whether or not it is in the course, or pardon me, whether or not they were prescribing that medication for a legitimate medical purpose. Where it also comes from is in the Code of Federal Regulations. You'll find that terminology in there as well. But typically what that has been used in is in civil cases. And, and, and what, ha- what came out of that court case is that the, what the ruling, the final ruling was, is that the states have the right to determine what legitimate medical purpose is. And so that means even when the DOJ is using that terminology in court cases against physicians, they're usually having to defer to the state definition of that. So whereas they're not allowed to define it, what you're finding is that they are actually using it, and they're using it uh, against physicians. And it's, it's actually listed in most of the, what you'll see when you look at any kind of the, the, the most recent cases against physicians, you'll find any of these cases where opioids are, indica- or, 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 uh, Im- implicated there, you'll find that term in the course of usual professional practice, which we know sort of what that means. And then you'll find legitimate medical purpose, which we don't know what that means. And so um, to kind of give you the easiest definition of that, it, it's simply that the, the state boards have been very, very quiet on it. They say, pay attention to the guidelines. They say, you know, you know it must be in keeping with uh, state and federal law, very vague definitions. Uh, we know what that looks like from case law, and that means that there's uh, several unique data points that they look at to see, was the drug first indicated? That's the first thing. So if you want to look at the actual definition, we see indication is very important. And there's several data points underneath indication that include determining onset, determining um, uh, duration, doing a physical exam, measuring the patient's pain score, measuring whether uh, there was functional uh, impairment, physical functional impairment. And then the second thing you look at is active verification. This one's very important. Active verification means that you checked to see what was the suitability or the level of suitability of that patient for opioid therapy. Um, and then, uh, and that involves a lot of different things. That involves mental health screening. Uh, that involves urine drug screening for aberrant behavior, p- checking the PDMP, documenting witness behavior in the office that might cause some red flags. Uh, and, then the, and then you're also looking at is that treatment plan in the best interest of patient safety for legitimate medical purpose. And that means, are you prescribing opioids safely? Safe initiation, starting with a short acting, not a long acting. Are you prescribing the lowest therapeutic dose the first time? Did the patient fail on an alternative treatment before they were even started on that medication? Are you making sure you're not concomitantly prescribing opioids and benzodiazepine therapy together? Um, and then the last part of it, uh, which has several data points under it as well, is when you continue that therapy. And that means at what point do you say that this uh, injury that this patient has is chronic and is going to need 
long-term opioid therapy because the patient is it's indicated for one, two, because the patient is suitable for it, uh, and three, because you believe that the benefit is going to outweigh the risk. And there's several data points under that as well that we look at that have to be assessed each time that you continue that therapy. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about document documentation being a real key here to basically cover yourself, to, to limit those risks. What Talk about that. What documentation needs to, to take place? Um, what are some of the best practices a provider should, you know, take into consideration when de- developing good documentation versus what you call bad documentation? Sure. That's a great question. Um, when we first started this program, I was in an airplane and I was sitting on a runway uh, with a, a gentleman named Richard Green. He was actually the inventor of the two-way switch, which later became the router. A very, very brilliant man. And um, we were sitting in his beach craft about to take off, and we were in Sarasota, Florida, and it was about 110 degrees on the inside of this airplane, and that air was not on yet. And my microphone wasn't on yet, and I just kept looking at him saying, man, Richard, please turn that air on. <laughs> and um, he finally uh, got the plane in the air, uh, but before he got the plane in the air, he did this checklist. And I just watched him, and he would point. And then he would point to the thing on the checklist, and he'd point to the plane. He did a mental, he did this in his, in his head, but he also did it visually with his hands. Now, Richard Green was also a Navy, uh, a fighter pilot in Vietnam uh, for many years. He'd been flying for almost 60 years. We finally got that plane in the air. I said, Richard, tell me you don't do that checklist every single time. And he said, every single time I get the plane in the air, I do the checklist. And I said, why? And he said, because lives are at stake. And that resonated with me. And it's something that I, I continue to use whenever I talk. It's something that, I, that motivated us to put together the program that we did. Because every time you prescribe an opioid, you might as well be giving somebody a, a loaded handgun. That is something that can not only kill them, but it can kill somebody else. And you have to think of it that way. You have to think, would I be giving this to my own daughter or son in, in the way that I'm giving it to this patient? And if you're doing that, then there needs to be a checklist. There needs to be a checklist because there's too many things to think about that you can't just sort of go with your intuition and your gut. With any other disease state, there's, you can kind of you can create that plan that you feel like you've you know, intuitively you feel like it's the right thing to do, or there's evidence there that you've already seen. With with prescribing opioids, there should be a checklist, and that's that's kind of what I would say when it comes to documentation. What's that checklist that the doctor's following every single time that they initiate that opioid and every time they continue it? And then the second thing I would say is uh, intent. Intent is everything. When a chart's pulled, oftentimes a physician believes that it's going to be other doctors that are looking at it, and while that may be the case at some point, the majority of people looking at that that chart to see whether or not it met the legal standard or the medical legal standards or whether it was uh, meeting the standard of legitimate medical purpose are attorneys. So it's not doctors that are looking at that going, oh, I can sort of see what the doctor did here and what he meant. They're looking at it and saying, is it substantiated? And, And that's a yes or no question in a lot of those different data points. Did the doctor determine this? What was the method they used to determine it? And what was the desired outcome? There's the three ways they look at it usually. And so... I would say intent is so important. Intent is important in criminal cases. If they can't prove criminal intent, you, there's no criminal charge. Um, in civil cases, it's important as well because what you're always going to find in civil cases is that they're going to try and make a case that the physician, what the physician was thinking or not thinking when they prescribed that medicine. And so documenting clear thought processes and intent are important. And you'll see it that, you know, we, we do chart auditing on physicians, and I can tell you that I can look at two charts of a doctor and tell you what the rest of them look like. Because 
physicians are creatures of habit, and, and just like we are, and, and in every industry, you're a creature of habit. You end up doing things the same way each time. So if you haven't developed a system of, of checkpoints in order to make sure that you're documenting each of these data points every time that you prescribe, and you're not clearly documenting your intent, what was the thought process? Remember, when you prescribe that first opioid, there's a lot of things you need to think about. When you prescribe the second opioid and you continue that medication, it's all about benefit and risk every single time. Did you prove in that chart, if an attorney was looking at it, did you prove that the benefit outweighed the risk? And is it very clearly stated in the chart? And so we know opioids already carry probably one of the highest risk uh, categories of any, far, any kind of uh, prescription you can issue. And so it's really important to make sure that you're really proving benefit every time as well. Okay. Now, it, it really is at the core of your message. What you're getting at is you're educating healthcare professionals about a prescriber's both civil and criminal risk when prescribing opioids for, as you call it, chronic non-cancer pain. Um, I mean, if you could just boil it down to a sentence or two, I mean, what are the key points you want our audience to understand about those risks? Well, the first thing is I want to demystify um, the, the whole legal proceedings that happen. Many physicians live in fear every day that someone's going to come into their office and arrest them. And we've seen some, certainly there are a lot of physicians that, that needed to not be practicing medicine anymore. Um, but you can see how when these, when this happens, it's very, it's the, the, the media is there before the, the, the law enforcement ever even gets there. And, and it's traumatic to watch that. If you're a physician, it's scary. And so what I want to do is demystify it. There's a lot of well-meaning physicians. I would tell you the majority of physicians that remain in practice today care about their patients and they want to do the right thing by their patients, and, they're, and they're, they still live in fear. And what, what I want to do is be able to show them, here's exactly what happens, here's what your true risk is, and believe it or not, for most physicians, there's not as much risk for criminal intervention as they think. You know, um, a very close friend of mine uh, was, used to work with the DEA for many years in the state of Alabama, and he said, look, the, whoever we're going after, they, they know full well that, that what they're doing is wrong. So, so that's the first thing I want to show is, you know, most of these physicians don't have to worry about criminal intervention. Most of them need to worry about civil, and they also need to make sure that they're doing exactly what they need to do so that if anything ever, if, the, if a chart's ever pulled, that they've documented uh, exactly what they need to do to make sure that they are, uh, you know, that there's not as much exposure as there could be. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing is just to give them the tools to do that. I think there's, there's certainly... Um, a number of data points that I'm going to go through to, to hopefully help them understand that if you, and they can, and we're going to give that list away as well of those data points and they can build those into templates if they want to. Um, there's obviously products out there uh, that, that can do this as well outside of the office, like our own care continuity program. But, but the goal is to really give them the, the, the tools that they need to be successful uh, at treating patients, to go back to being able to have those conversations with patients about pain and not worrying every single day about the compliance part of it. And we talk to physicians that just say, I, you know, three quarters of the visit with my patient is just checking the compliance boxes and making sure I'm, I'm, I, I did what I needed to do to, in order to prescribe that, that, that opioid. So. Mm -hmm. now, earlier you gave sort of a historical perspective. You went all the way back to the 90s, the 2000s, as far as where we are uh, in the opio opioid crisis. Where are we right now? I mean, I, I know you mentioned earlier about how uh, overdoses and deaths had, had risen, um, but where are we as far as education from the medical community and, and how we're dealing with it? 
I think education-wise, there's there's so much information now that, and that's good. I think that you'd have to kind of be kind of ha- hanging out under a rock to not know what's going on. Uh, it's the opioids are listed in the, in the opioid epidemics in the news every single day, um, and there's a lot of good advice and good education. I can tell you the, uh, the 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 required CME now for this in most states has been very good at educating physicians. Um, so I think education, we're there. I think that. The education's there. Now it comes down to having real conversations, and that's what the hard part is. Real conversations mean we, we need to talk about some of the, the constraints now that are keeping physicians from actually implementing what the education that they already have. There's, there's a, there's giving physicians knowledge is one thing, and then giving them a tool that actually helps them execute in the office is another thing, and that's been the biggest issue that we see is physicians want to do the right thing, they just don't have the time to do it. And mm-hmm. so where we're at now is it is an opioid-naive patient. I can tell you most patients, uh, I've never before I would say in the history of the United States have more patients been denying opioid therapy when they go into an office. We, I hear it all the time from people. They say, oh, I, I was, my doctor tried to give me opioids. I said, no way, I don't want that. And, and so phys- patients are also waking up to, hey, there's real risk here. And remember, not, not all patients uh, and not all opioid therapy is bad. That's the other thing. It's, it's really important to, to, get, to let that pendulum kind of swing back to the middle a little bit. It's gone all the way from one side to the other. And I think now what's really important is to say, hey, there are some patients out there that absolutely need opioid therapy and it improves their quality of life. And if it's done at a low safe dose and it's done properly, it's very effective. And, and so those patients should not have trouble with access. And right now that's what we're seeing. People with legitimate pain have trouble getting access to it. People with dependence have trouble getting access to the help that they need, and people with addiction have trouble. So you've got this whole population of people that are all intermingled. You've got pain, legitimate pain, pain with addiction, addiction without pain. Every single one of them fall under the category of dependence for the most part. So I think coming up with a a balanced approach to help those get out of, that don't need to be taking opioid therapy, be able to taper successfully and discontinue that therapy, and then allowing the patients that, that truly need that therapy to continue to take it without the stigma and without the fear. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. These were uh, eye-opening statistics and stories that you told us. Thanks for sharing these. Th- thanks so much, Daniel, for having me on the, the podcast. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Stericycle for sponsoring today's show. Also, thanks to our guest, John Bowman. John can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Did you miss early bird registration? Don't worry, we have you covered. Use the code POD200 while registering and save $200. Visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19 for more information and to register for the conference. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.